Do you want to hear the latest on Germany and nuclear power? They are talking about it. The finance minister, it is a coalition government, and the finance minister, Christian Linder, who honestly I'm not a huge fan of, he seemed kind of like uh, his shoes were too big for him as he came into the job. Maybe it is for anybody on a realistic level. I mean, to be the finance minister of a country, in a weird way, who is prepared for that? Nevertheless, surprisingly for me, he is telling the chancellor, Olaf Scholz, that they have to start talking about energy supply in a non-ideological way. Quote, we have safe nuclear power plants, end quote. But Scholz, who says he understands Linder's unideological approach, says the government will stick to its approach to, quote, phase out nuclear energy. So meanwhile, Europe turns to coal. So go figure. I guess they think this is a temporary situation. I mean, remember controversial Paul from the Sirius report? I mean, if you look at his Twitter feed, which is super interesting, I mean, he's basically saying, and I don't even think we need to go to Paul for this, it looks like Russia is just turning its energy supply to the east and just finding new partners. And it's not really going to sit there as a second-class citizen while Europe decides if they want their oil or not and when the oil will be uh, removed. It's sort of like, you know, if you don't want the oil, imagine it's you. Again, this isn't to defend Russia, but I think part of the problem we've had during this entire conflict is not being able to see the other side's point of view, the way that the other side sees their own point of view, right? The charity of interpretation, Plato's Crito, the great lesson in that short 20-page dialogue is trying to be able to see the other side's point of view the way that they see it. And that's part of the huge communications breakdown that we've had here. And so... Using that mindset, if you're the person who's supplying oil and you have a customer that's going, "Uh, maybe we want it, maybe we don't, we're going to try and get rid of it, we hate your guts anyway, aren't you just going to start moving that oil as soon as possible somewhere else or energy or gas or whatever the case is, whatever the, the product is? So Europe turns to coal and we have an article... In the Financial Times today, Germany fires up coal plants to avert gas shortage as Russia cuts supply. Now, when did this supply cut come? And it's kind of like it was the day after, remember that train picture where Mario Draghi, Olaf Scholz, and and, uh, Macron, France, Italy, and Germany were in that train? I don't know if you saw that on Twitter, but as if it was like 1890 and they went to Kiev to assure Zelensky that Ukraine would become a part of the EU. And then, you know, as predictable as night following day, Russia the next day says, okay, we have repairs to do for our pipeline that supplies Germany, France, and Italy. And then the Italians come out and say, well, we think this is on purpose. It's like, what clued you in? 
Mr. Draghi. Like, you're just figuring this out now? So all to say, and we come back to this nuclear issue in Germany, which, again, it might sound local. I mean, this is, in a sense, this is an international program. It's a Canadian-based newspaper, but it is global mining news. And yes, I am based in Germany, but I do see this as kind of a microcosm of the disconnect, this debate on nuclear, because it's sort of like, as we were saying last week, with the oil, where, you know, the oil industry, I think, is taken aback when oil's there at $124 a barrel, and people are saying, you know, as the Secretary General of the UN was saying, that it's madness or it's delusional, as he put it, to invest in fossil fuels and the development of that, which as anybody who is familiar with this narrative knows, we need energy in order to make the transition. However, that happens. It take, it's going to require an enormous amount of energy and metal and copper. And if you want that copper to remain below $5 a pound, you're going to want your energy costs low. And I just don't think they're thinking about that. I think they're going, we need to save the earth, which as all people want to live in a clean world, free from climate change and all whatever else might be happening. But I just don't think they're thinking this through. And it's it's sort of like, remember that article where we were talking about, it was the last FT article we read on Germany and nuclear power maybe a couple of months ago. Remember there was that guy that ran the nuclear power plant in Germany? They were giving all the reasons why Germany wasn't turning to nuclear. And as one of them, I think, presciently put it, it's an emotional issue. It's never coming back. You know, and I think that's kind of what a lot of this fossil fuel debate is around. And even look at this nuclear. Like, I mean, how else are you going to explain turning to coal over nuclear? which gives zero CO2 emissions from my understanding, like zero. So how do you explain it? Other than it's an emotional issue. In other words, rational thought is not at the helm here. Emotion is, you know, and then don't get me started on Kaliningrad, which doesn't have much to do with mining, but geopolitics today has to do with mining. And I tell you, I'm getting concerned. This blockade that Lithuania did for Russia, between Russia and Kaliningrad, which I believe they consider their own. And now Lithuania is saying you can't take your trains through Lithuania. And then Russia, Peskov, the foreign minister, put out a statement basically saying, you know, it basically saying we're considering our options, which in my world, it was translated as you have 48 hours to get rid of that blockade before we really do something about it. And we can hate on the Russians all we want here. I'm not here to make that judgment. But what they do have, dislike them or not, is they have credibility. When they say they're going to do something, they do it, right? It's, it's not the red line. Like their red lines are kept to. And just as far as I you know, can see from over here. So was this NATO through Lithuania making this move? Another provocation? Is this Lithuania just emotionally taking matters into their own hands and saying, 
Who cares about World War III? We're next. It's already begun. And this is another thing, finally, before we get to our awesome CEO segment that's coming with Blue Sky Uranium, very topical. Some people are saying how World War III has begun. And, you know, I'm actually like semi-sympathetic to that idea. But the reality is, is it actually hasn't. I mean, maybe symbolically, we can say it has. Maybe even economically, we can say World War III has begun, or quote-unquote. But we are not directly at war at this point. In fact, it has not begun. I think it's important to remind ourselves this. If anything, it looked like things were starting to slightly chill before this latest provocation by Lithuania. So I still think it's worth it for us to be trying to avoid World War III. Because, you know, I've started, as I look at this Lithuania story, I was starting to look like, where do I move? If this turns into something, and we can't assume that it's not going to turn into something. You know, you have to think ahead. You have to think for the worst, right? And so I was thinking, where do I go? Maybe I go to Argentina, where blue sky uranium is, the so-called global south, which one assumes will not be caught up in this. But who knows? Anyways, we have a wonderful show for you here today. If you want to know what's going on in Quebec... If you have a project in Quebec, if you're thinking about starting a project in Quebec, or if you're investing in a project in Quebec or thinking of it, this is your show. This is taken from the Global Mining Symposium. It's a thought leadership presentation, positioning for the global transition to battery metals and what Quebec is doing about it. It features Tony Brisson, president and CEO of SOCAM, which is a subsidiary of Investissement Quebec. And it also features Natalie Camden, Associate Deputy Minister, Min Ministère de l'Energie et des Ressources Naturelles, and Amio Choquette, Senior Director of Investments at Ressources Quebec. So you will get a 20-minute précis on exactly what is going on from a regulatory governmental point of view in Quebec and in battery metals where it doesn't get any more Topical. With that, if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Instagram at the Northern Miner and on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. And wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. And with that, let's turn to Nico Kekos, Chief Executive Officer of Blue Sky Uranium, part of the Grosso Group, in this week's. CEO Spotlight. Joining us today, I am very pleased to welcome Nico Kakos, President and CEO of Blue Sky Uranium, to this week's CEO Spotlight. Nico, welcome to the show. Adrian, thank you for having me here. My pleasure to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. And uranium is such a topical subject these days. And I've heard about your company for years. I mean, you guys have been around. So you have a project in Argentina. Tell us what Blue Sky Uranium is working on in Argentina. 
Well, I'd be pleased to talk about Blue Sky and what we're working on. It's something very exciting, especially now in times when the uranium market seems to really beginning to blossom and we're seeing uh, ever-rising uranium prices. But what's unique about what we have uh, in Argentina is we're developing not just a uranium deposit, but we're developing an entire new district, a district that I guess span is a, represents a corridor of a 145 kilometers long by 50 kilometers wide. And this corridor, what's exciting about it, has similarities, geological similarities, with many of the deposits that are found today in Kazakhstan, which, by the way, produces up to half of the world's uranium needs. And we're finding something very similar here in Argentina. And, you know, we have uh, established already a deposit there, just under 23 million pounds of uranium and 11 and a half million pounds of vanadium. And now we're working on the next step in being able to identify additional deposits in the area along this whole trend. And from the studies that we've done, we can see that this has got the potential to rank amongst the largest uranium districts in the world, like those in Kazakhstan, and with some of the world's lowest operating costs. So it's a very, very unique opportunity in the uranium space. It sure sounds like it. And it sounds quite surprising, actually. So are there other uranium companies around or did you guys manage to, you said there's a district there. Uh, is there a history of uranium in the area? Can you tell us about that? Not in exploration. I mean, Argentina is a relative newcomer to the mining industry to, to begin with. 30 years ago, the country was totally under state control with no exploration and, and so forth. There used to be some mining production in Argentina, uh, but it stopped in the 90s because of lack of funding. But what's interesting about there's no other players, by the way, in, in, in the uranium industry right now in Argentina. We're we're at we are the largest and most advanced deposit uh, in that country, even in this early stage. But what really stands out and what most investors don't realize that Argentina is a nuclear country. They have been in the nuclear business since the 1950s, almost as long as the United States has. So, and they're active in all facets of the uranium cycle, everything except for production of uranium. They import all the uranium needs and they pay a premium. And this is what actually sets up Blue Sky for a very unique business opportunity. And we can become Argentina's first domestic supplier for its uranium needs and then a net exporter from there on. Fascinating. So, and just a little bit of clarity of where you are. So how long have you been drilling? And I guess... Uh, you're going to drill some more, you were saying. And, and I guess another way of putting it is, what's the roadmap here and where are you? We've been exploring this region now because it's such a huge area for the last 15 years. And it started up in the northwestern part of the corridor, working towards our way to the southeast. And it wasn't really until 2018 that we identified the Ivana deposit. And we made a deposit. We published our first resource. And then we started to accelerate our exploration program. Then we did a preliminary economic analysis. And what we found in that was that, you know, we could conceptually produce a pound of uranium for just over $16 a pound cash cost. That, that would rank it amongst the lowest, you know, producers in the world. But our objective here is, fine, we've got one deposit. And then in the surrounding area, we've got another four or five targets that we're currently actively drilling. The point, the idea here is, can we find another deposit, another Ivana deposit in this area? And our objective is to identify, like I said, four or five other deposits and be able to run everything out of a single production facility, like a hub and spoke type of facility. So there's only one capital cost expenditure 
with many deposits that could be run by with a mobile plant. So our objective here is to continue the drilling that we're doing the drilling right now. And as we enter the fall here in North America, to move the project towards a pre-feasibility study. It's a, a detailed economic study that lasts almost about a year. And at the end of which we make a production decision. And when it's time to go into production, while even though this is like a quarry, the simple mineralization, the way it occurs and being able to extract the uranium is simple, but I would like to see us team up with an experienced uranium producer that can iron out any uh, risks and wrinkles that might be there so that we can de-risk it for, for our shareholders and be able to take it forward. Well, I would imagine it's a highly specialized business to extract uranium. Uh, you probably need all sorts of you know, permits and everything. And, and that brings me to Argentina. I mean, a lot of investors, often they like North America, but you know, a lot of the time the opportunities are in other parts of the world, the blue sky opportunities, so to speak. So tell us, what is your experience working in Argentina? How do you find it? I've been working in Argentina for almost 30 years now. I'm a part of the Grosso Group uh, Management. That's the, the management group that manages uh, Blue Sky Uranium. And Grosso Group is a management team that actually helped pioneer mining exploration in, in that country. So we have a lot of experience there. And we have had a lot of success with other sister companies. We've made four major uh, discoveries in that, uh, in that part of the world. And we're really highly well regarded. So the first thing is to, you know, to have a team that is experienced and knows how to work there. Second of all, Argentina, I can't think of a better place in which to make a uranium discovery because Argentina is a nuclear country, like I said at the outset, and all the laws and regulations for handling and moving uranium and radioactive materials, they're already in place. So when the time comes to go into mm -hmm. production, we don't have to sit and wait for parliament to debate for years and years on how to implement all these things. And thirdly, even the province that we're actually active in is the best province in Argentina because it owns a state-owned company that's actually involved in manufacture of small modular reactors and nuclear research and whatnot, and we're collaborating with them. There's even a pilot enrichment plant in that province. So Argentina, you know, I guess to the outside world is a place where there's a lot of economic instability here and there. And I've seen governments come and go of all, you know, of left and uh, right wing. But the one constant is always there is the uh, diehard support for mining. Argentina needs money and they recognize the underdeveloped mining industry there and their need to have domestic supply of uranium. And they've always been very, very supportive of mining. And that's what gives me and my team a lot of confidence to operate in that country. Well, it sounds like a very beautiful part of the world. When people talk about Argentina, my Latin American friends, they all say, I have to visit. Now, in terms of the people and finding workers, and as you were sort of mentioning the economic issues, like how's the inflation side of things? It sounds like it's okay, as you're saying, from a, I guess, a regulatory point of view. How is it from sort of a practical operations point of view? Are you able to get the workers you need? Sometimes this is an issue for companies. Yeah. No, oh, absolutely. We get workers. There's a small town nearby where we operate and we get all our supply of workers there. There's a local university there that actually has a uh, young geologists training uh, to become uranium geologists. And uh, we play an active role in engaging with the university, giving them practicums and giving them employment when they finish. So workers are, is not an issue and employment is a bit of an issue in Argentina. 
the lack of it rather. <laughs> so we're that we're actually well received to be there and we're happy to employ uh locals. And the second thing, of course, with respect to inflation, Argentina is experiencing some very high inflation right now. And uh this of course is uh creating challenges for the people that work for us. We try to adjust their their wages on a quarterly or as needed basis to ensure that you know they can keep up with inflation. But from a corporate point of view, things seem, you know, when there's inflation there and we raise money in, in Canadian dollars, so it actually becomes cheaper for us to operate there. And the the kind of exploration work that we're doing there, because the mineralization on our deposit is really sits at surface, it doesn't require deep drilling. It's actually quite cost effective to to do the work. So it doesn't cost a lot of money. It's kind of like a a, a dream situation, so to speak. Yeah, if you're working in Canadian dollars and you're uh, in a country with a currency that's having issues, I would imagine that's a that's a very practical situation, shall we say. So as we close here, what's the takeaway for investors? What do you want them to know about your company? Why should they invest? We're very different than other a typical exploration company. We're not working on a deposit that, you know, is uh, situated, I don't know, in the middle of uh, deep, buried deep in hard rock or under a lake that requires, you know, 50, 60, 70 dollar price of uranium in order for it uh, to break even. We're working on a deposit that sits at surface. Our break even costs are around 16 dollars. You know, we did that P economic study back when price of uranium was at 20 dollars uh, a pound. And we thought, wow, even at 20 dollars, this makes money. Now, at $45, $50, 60 and, and higher where it's projected, it, it's uh, it's a no-brainer for us. I, I think we have a potential here to have a really world-class uranium discovery with some of the world's lowest uranium costs and uh, be able to shift sort of the the main supply of uranium from, you know, this geopolitically unstable region and so currently in, in Kazakhstan to the Western Hemisphere. And I think that represents a tremendous opportunity. So if people want to find you online, is it blueskyuranium.com? That is correct, blueskyuranium.com. And uh, go online, fire us an email. There's a phone number on there. Call up, talk to us. We're happy to discuss, to talk to interested investors. Excellent. Well, Nico Kakos, president and CEO of Blue Sky Uranium, thank you for joining us on this week's CEO Spotlight. Thank you for having me. And we'd like to thank Blue Sky Uranium, Nico Kakos, and the Grosso Group for sponsoring this episode and the last three episodes. Much appreciated. Turning to the website, this was a head turner. Kinross Gold sold Russian assets at half the agreed price. So very real cost to this war here is by Cecilia Jamazmi. Kinross Gold said on Wednesday last week it had sold its Kupol mine and Udinsk project in Russia to Highland Gold Mining for a total of $340 million in cash, half of the price announced in April. And you can bet that sale in April was probably way under the market rate to begin with. The Canadian miners suspended operations in Russia in early March to both comply with Western sanctions against Moscow over its invasion of Ukraine and avoid reputational damage by staying in the country. Kinross, which had been operating in the Federation for about 25 years, said the price adjustment followed a review by the recently formed Russian Subcommission on the Control of Foreign Investments. Country authorities in March said that any transaction between Russians and foreign counterparties required permission from the Commission to ensure decisions to exit were not driven by political pressure. 
The assets sold to Highland Gold, one of Russia's largest bullion miners, were the Kupol Underground Mine and the surrounding exploration licenses in the country's far eastern region of Chukotka, about 7,000 kilometers from Ukraine. It also included Udinsk, the first project Kinross expected to develop on the Chilbatkan license acquired in 2020. Kinross had envisioned beginning production at the pit in 2025. And we have a quote from Scotiabank that said, quote, We view this announcement as mildly positive as Kinross has finally exited Russia with $300 million in cash today. The market had been concerned that KGC would not receive any cash with only small deferred portion for next year. Well, that is definitely a rosy view on this from Scotiabank. I mean, maybe you agree. I mean, I, this is, uh, to me, this is catastrophic from Kinross Gold's point of view. I mean, that is just my take on it for what that's worth, reading the same story that you're reading. Another interesting story, BHP to shut Mount Arthur coal mine as buyers walk. So nobody wants to buy BHP's coal mine. I brought up a chart of coal. Now, I'm not sure. It's just the coal. So it doesn't say if it's metallurgical or thermal. I know there is a difference, but the coal chart from tradingeconomics.com peaked out at 417 and now it's at like 384. But like last September was at 121. Nevertheless, BHP is shutting it down. Let's see why. Cecilia Jamazmi on the story, BHP's planned exit from thermal coal has been modified as the company has decided to keep its Mount Arthur mine, New South Wales' largest coal operation, after failing to find a buyer for it. Now, this is an interesting story. Their exit from thermal coal has been modified. So almost a bit of a misleading headline. You wonder if they just decided to, like, I don't doubt the veracity of this you know, narrative here that, well, we couldn't find any buyers, but with coal going through the roof, like a 3x or more in the last six months, maybe BHP is like, well, maybe if we sit on it for long enough, actually, they're going to want us to put this back into production. For the past two years, the world's largest miner has offloaded coal assets as it seeks to reduce emissions and streamline its portfolio. It succeeded in selling its stake in the Serayon coal mine in Colombia, acquired by Glencore, and divesting its majority stake in BHP Mitsui Coal, a metallurgical coal joint venture in Queensland, Australia. It also kicked off a merger of its oil and gas assets with Australia's Woodside Petroleum, which was completed in May 2022. Mount Arthur proved to be a more difficult asset to sell, even though the company slashed last year the mine value by about $1.3 billion. As it didn't receive offers that matched its valuation of the asset, see, they weren't willing to sell it at any price. As it didn't, this is a key sentence here, as it didn't receive offers that matched its valuation of the asset, BHP said on Thursday it would retain its NSW energy coal division and seek approval to operate beyond 2026 when the current permit expires until the 2030 financial year. After that, it will close the operation, which seized domestic sales in full year 2020 and currently exports its coal mainly to Japan and South Korea. BHP previously planned to mine at Mount Arthur, which turns out between 14 and 15 million tons of thermal coal per year, until 2045. So this thing's massive. So you see how this all relates directly to, I mean, energy. It's the story. It's resources. It's, as we were saying last week, it is the central stories. It always has been, and now we're just being reminded of that. 
Miners must invest in critical minerals or risk energy transition. This is also by Cecilia Jamasmi. The world's biggest miners need to aggressively invest in critical metals or will hold back the global energy transition away from fossil fuels, a new report shows. According to PwC's 19th annual review of the top 40 mining companies, which examines global trends in the industry, future success will depend on whether global miners can take a leading role in the world's clean energy transition and continue to generate significant stakeholder value. The resources are there, the report shows. Top miners posted stellar financial results for 2021, with revenues rising by 32% on the back of high commodity prices and prudent cost management. Their combined net profit reached $159 billion last year, a staggering 127% increase from the $70 billion they recorded in 2020. I don't know if I'd call this staggering. I mean, their combined profit of the top 40 mining companies is $159 billion only? And that's a 127% increase from the $70 billion in 2020. They only made $70 billion last year. I mean, maybe that's, a, I guess that's a lot of money. But I mean, I just remember 2001, uh, this is kind of like a guideline in my head for how much money is money. Way back in 2001, after the World Trade Center attack, George Bush put $80 billion into the economy. So that was in 2001. So 19 years later, the top 40 mining companies only made $70 billion. It's an interesting metric, uh, at least in my mind. Continuing on, Paul Bendall, global mining leader at PwC, warns it's unclear how long this record run will continue given the unprecedented change the industry is facing. Quote, demand for critical minerals continues to surge. Operating environments are getting more challenging and new players are emerging. Figures from the International Energy Agency suggest that annual critical minerals demand from clean energy technologies will reach more than $400 billion by 2050. And we have a quote from Paul Bendel, global mining leader at PwC, quote, companies need to position themselves to meet the growing demand for critical minerals, evolving customer expectations, and the need to innovate to deliver higher value across the entire supply chain. Well, yes, they do. So you can read all about it on northernminer.com. Interestingly, the Peruvian government has decided to extend the tax refund benefit to mining and oil exploration. This by Northern Miner staff during a presentation at the 2022 PDAC conference in Toronto. And on that note, we have tons of PDAC coverage. I've kind of left it out a little bit so that you can go to the website. There's almost too much to do. So I thought, okay, I'll leave it for you guys. Go to the northernminer.com you will find a ton of awesome PDAC coverage by Alicia and the team there. During a presentation at the 2022 PDAC conference in Toronto, the Peruvian Minister of Economy and Finance, Oscar Graham, announced that his government will extend to 2025 the tax refund benefit to mining and oil exploration that was scheduled to end in December 2022. According to Graham, the decision is based on the government's desire to guarantee the growth of the mining sector, which is responsible for 63% of the country's exports. Remember we were talking in the last week or two how ESG might start to take a backseat to energy and metal needs? And again, I'm not saying if that's a good or a bad thing. I am just starting to see like the world is starting, some of it is starting to kind of get a little bit more favorable to mining as shortages pile up. So you can read all about that on northernminer.com. And just a couple more headlines here. Copper price outlook is improving with increasing demand and and Russia-driven supply troubles by Henry Lazenby. Analysts expect historically high prices for copper, aluminum, nickel, zinc, steel, 
and other base and precious metals to benefit miners in the year's second half. Credit ratings agency Moody Investors Services expects commodity prices to continue to reflect the risk of supply and trade flow disruptions, especially if the Ukraine military conflict escalates. So in other words, buy the dip, according to Moody's Investors Services, not financial advice. Uh, Moody's VP and senior credit officer Emil El Nims says rising energy and freight costs will also support elevated prices, increasing the likelihood of additional production curtailments in Europe, where high energy prices are already straining industrial production. This is pre-last Wednesday when energy supplies continued to be cut. So they were already strained industrial production and tightening the supply of steel and primary aluminum. And we have a quote Even though input costs will rise, including prices for metallurgical coal, iron ore, and pig iron used in steelmaking, selling prices for steel will continue to exceed historical levels and temper the impact. And we have another quote, this time from Fitch. Global supply is tight due to disruptions, including escalating social tensions in Peru and water supply issues in Chile. However, we anticipate global production growth later in 2022 to offset disruptions. And Fitch continues, we still expect prices to moderate in 2023 as supplies from new mines increase. The market will remain largely balanced. The energy transition will also drive demand while medium-term supply growth will moderate. So since Fitch sees everything kind of moderating, it should be kind of a welcome change. And finally, Glencore trading profit poised for best ever year. And that's saying something. Again, I'm listening to uh, The World for Sale. If you want to learn the history of Glencore, fascinating book by Javier Blas. I get the audio book on Amazon. It's quite interesting. This is also by Cecilia Jamasmi. Glencore said on Friday that the first half year profit from its commodities trading unit is on track to achieve its annual earnings target in the first six months of 2022, placing it on course for its best ever year. So they are on track to achieve their annual earnings target in the first six months of 2022. So they are making off like bandits. The Swiss company expects adjusted operating profit to exceed $3.2 billion US for the first half of the year. That's profit boosted by soaring commodity prices, supply disruptions, and volatility. So these traders, remember it was $70 billion in 2020 that the entire top 40 mining companies made as profit. These traders in the first six months of 2022 have just raked in $3.2 billion. That's 5% of that $70 billion number. I mean, we're sort of jumping around years here, but just to give some context, because we see these huge numbers and we kind of don't know what they mean, do we? At least I don't. The figure compares to the record profit of $3.7 billion the company recorded in full year 2021. And it also beats its long-term guidance range of $2.2 to $3.2 billion. Finally, Prices for most of what Glencore mines, including thermal coal, have reached record highs in recent months as a result of market volatility, shortages triggered by COVID-related lockdowns, and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's like, Glencore will happily take your coal mines off you. Uh, as I was telling a friend, and you know, this is just editorial, but it's, it's not that they're immoral, they're just amoral. And who knows? I haven't paid attention to their conference calls. They may have a completely different company now. But just listening to the book, I mean, it's that was sort of my reflection. So those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices.
turn into metal prices, we'd like to just start with the 10-year bond, which is at 3.294. That's 3.294%. So that's down on the week, just 0.02, so barely anything. Uh, But it was an interesting week in the bond market. I think it went up to at least 3.4%. It continued to make new highs. So that is interesting. Turning to our precious metals, and we'd like to thank mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. On June 21st, gold is trading at $1,833.64 per ounce. That is $10 higher than last week. Silver is trading at $21.65 per ounce. That is 48 cents higher than last week. Platinum is trading a dollar higher at $941.03 per ounce. And palladium is also trading higher at $1,869.90 per ounce. That is $58 higher than last week. So gold and silver per cup a bit, platinum basically even, and palladium perks up a bit. So precious metals holding their own, turning to our industrial metals. Copper is 20 cents lower at $4.13 per pound. Aluminum is 10 cents lower at $1.12 per pound. Lead is 4 cents lower at 94 cents per pound. Nickel is 97 cents lower at $11.54 per pound. So finally, the wind is starting to come a little bit out of nickel's sales there. Tin is also lower at $14.79 per pound. That is $1.79 lower than last week. And cobalt is 22 cents lower at $32.55 per pound. Zinc is 8 cents lower at $1.62 per pound. So what do we see? I would say... Considering all the volatility, gold and silver continue to hold their own, especially gold. And we always have to think about the precious metals here in the context of an incredibly strong U.S. dollar. And in that respect, you know, usually gold moves in the opposite direction. And basically, gold has kind of held in there for the last few months of this rally. So gold actually is doing quite well one could argue, on a relative basis compared to everything else. Industrial metals taking a big breather. I wouldn't call these prices low by any stretch. I did see $4.01 on CNBC, and someone said it went below $4 with copper. So these recession fears, and people are talking about demand fears with that 0.75% raise in interest rates. I mean, so there's a lot of kind of demand destruction fears. And you're starting to see it reflected in industrial commodities. Not so much the precious metals, though. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have the thought leadership presentation from the Global Mining Symposium. And this panel was called Positioning for the Global Transition to Battery Metals. And it was basically about how Quebec is dealing with and trying to help encourage mining particularly for the battery metals and really how far they've come and how positive the area is as a mining jurisdiction globally. And Henry Lazenby is the moderator of the panel, and it features Tony Brisson, president and CEO of Soquam, Natalie Camden, associate deputy ministers, Mines Ministère de l'Énergie et de Ressources Naturelles, so associate deputy minister of mines, and Energy and Natural Resources, and Amyot Choquette, Senior Director Investments at Ressources Quebec. 
It's a very interesting, enlightening discussion on the state of affairs in Quebec for minors. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. to present to you our GMS Thought Leadership Panel featuring representatives from the Quebec government. Joining us is Natalie Camden, Associate Deputy Minister in Quebec's Department of Energy and Natural Resources. She is flanked by geologist Tony Bryson, the President and CEO of Soquem Inc. and Amayot Chokwit, Senior Director for Investments at Resources Quebec. Let's get to the discussion portion of this presentation. And let me ask with our Associate Deputy Minister Camden to please share with uh, the audience just how exactly Quebec is positioning to take advantage of this global transition to battery metals. I'm thinking perhaps, you know, uh, it, it's an opportunity for you to unpack a little bit more what the action plan on critical and strategic uh, minerals really mean in the context of the electrification of everything in the world. Thank you. Thank you for the question. In fact, as we know, we are going to a sober economy in terms of decarbonation. So for us, it's an opportunity because we have the minerals required to go ahead with these uh, renewable energies and with hydroelectricity, it's a real asset for Quebec. And uh, one other thing that we've done, I talked before about the impact and what was in our action plan regarding the development of critical and strategic minerals. But I should mention also that we do have complementary industrial policies and other governmental policies that are totally complementary and align with our objectives to develop the minerals. And these uh, policies are the uh, greenest economy, the, which we call the economy vert, and also and mainly the strategy on battery. And that one was launched at the same time as the critical mineral plan. And they go along together because uh, uh, we can feed the battery manufacturers with our minerals. But in our plan, and I mentioned it before, we wanted to cover all the aspects coming from exploration until recycling and of course going through manufacturing and so far we've had great results and perhaps for those who haven't noticed but last March we got big announcement made in Quebec. We heard that GM and its uh, counterpart from um, South Korea, POSCO, they made an announcement to uh, produce cathodes in Bécancour, which is a, a city located between Montreal and Quebec. And at the same moment, we had the uh, German company, the huge one, the BASF, making a, the same announcement, an announcement putting in place a facility to produce cathodes again. So we see the results and of course they will bear on the, uh, the minerals produced in Quebec to supply them. So it, we see the need from different industries as well as different governments to be less reliant on certain countries and to diversify and secure their, uh, their supplies. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. So that's uh, what we've been doing. And in our plans regarding critical minerals, we saw that it was very important to increase the knowledge at all levels, even for the geoscientific work that we do conduce within the department. We thought it was important to know more about critical minerals. So we uh, we put aside money and we hired people. We dedicated a team which work only on, on uh, critical minerals. So it's something new that will help exploration companies to make their investment in Quebec. And mm-hmm. it's the same thing for recycling, because we know that the, the demand is so exponential that we, we won't, it won't be sufficient from virgin sources. So the key element is also a circular economy as well as recycling, since we know that at the worldwide scale, there's only 9%, I believe, from all the ex- resources extracted that are being reused. So the potential is there. And we need to, to support that. And to do so, what we do is uh, we put aside money to invest into R&D and innovation. That's mm-hmm. the other key. And one of the key takeaways that I'm getting from what you're saying is that when you partner with the Quebec government, you get like a holistic kind of focus from the government side to see projects through from mine to metal yep. to uh, you know, the cradle to grave kind of uh, concept. Uh, and the other takeaway is that there's a significant focus by the Quebec government on uh, setting up the midstream section of this, you know, green revolution and to capture yeah. that value, the value add value, you know, from the critical minerals in the ground to the market. I don't know if you've got any further comments on that. Yeah, you're right. And this is something that wasn't really in our mind back a few years or decades ago. Now it's uh, it's really uh, an objective that we're uh, aiming at to better be integrated and have the whole value chain, not in for all the minerals and uh, critical uh, critical minerals, but we have to find the place, the room where it, we fit the most and with all the assets that we can uh, have and we can promote. So this is uh, what we did is we did produce a, a study to see what were those value chains for the different minerals and see where we could fit in with, of course, other partners from other countries and from the other uh, industrial sectors. Let's turn to Amiot. Uh, with Resource Quebec. Could you please give us a little bit more of your view on how the province is positioning to benefit from the energy transition? Uh, I'm thinking more in terms of, you know, how Quebec is, you know, maintaining its position as one of the most innovative mining industries in Canada. Yeah, sure. Well, there's a number of factors why I think Quebec is well positioned. First, uh, geographically, uh, well, first we have the minerals, I guess, to support the electrification of uh, transport and the, but we're geographically uh, well located. We're close to the, I guess, the Auto Valley and Detroit, Michigan and uh, in Ontario and down south to North Carolina. But as well with the St. Lawrence Seaway and all the railways, we're well well, I guess St. Lawrence Seaway well positioned to supply Europe as well. And of course, as mentioned earlier in uh, Mrs. Camden's presentation and, and in mine, uh, we have all the uh, raw materials to, uh, to supply the, the, the battery value chain. Of course, low uh, cost and clean energy, that's, uh, that's uh, an advantage that, that we have. I think uh, over the, 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 in the coming years, automakers uh, will be looking to have uh, cleanest uh, vehicles on, on the road. So uh, by uh, Quebec supplying 
CAM uh, materials to the automakers, uh, which are produced with green power, will be uh, an advantage. Of course, we have skilled laborers. We're part of free trade agreements with US, of course, US, Mexico, Europe, and uh, Asia, Trans-Pacific. We, of course, us being here shows that uh, the government uh, has a strong support for the industry, and we walk the talk. We're willing to invest in, in, the, in projects that uh, we think are beneficial to the economy and uh, to the uh, battery materials uh, value chain. Of course, if we uh, broaden our, our view, we have a lot of universities and research centers in, in Quebec uh, that are uh, in the mining industry as well in the I guess, battery value chains with chemical engineers and, and other uh, functions like this. Natalie uh, mentioned we are the sixth jurisdiction in the world, uh, according to uh, Fraser Institute. That's uh, because we have clear and legal and environmental framework. We have agreements with First Nations, uh, example, the Great Alliance with the Crees. So um, easy access to market. So I guess uh, that's number of reasons why we think Quebec will uh, will strive and uh, will not strive but will be uh, competitive in, in this market yeah that's uh, yeah. my my personal view of this but uh, I guess BASF and GM Bosco agreed to to that by deciding to to invest in Quebec yes, and hopefully absolutely. that's that's uh, the, the, the first uh, few firsts that are coming but hopefully in the coming months we'll be able to announce uh, further investments in the battery right. materials value chain well, uh, something that jumped out at me during your presentation was uh, you saying that you've got about $1 billion in available funds for various projects and uh, companies positioned along the value chain. How difficult is it for, you know, perhaps a junior explorer, you know, to access this kind of funding support? How tightly do you keep the first strings? Well, like I mentioned, of course... We need economic benefits in Quebec. We need strong management team. We need uh, social acceptability. So we have our investment criteria, but uh, of course, as long as a company or project has a pre-economic assessment, a PEA, we're willing to, to support uh, these projects through equity investments uh, at the early stages uh, to support them uh, with their pre-feasibility study, feasibility studies. And uh, when it's time for construction, then there's another other financial instruments that are available. As I mentioned, SOCAM uh, at the exploration side is uh, partnering with, with these types of companies. But yeah, it's, it's not always easy to, to raise money uh, in the, the market. This past couple of years with the, the price of metals and battery materials uh, rising is a little bit easier. But, uh, you know, even in downturns, we're there to, to support these projects. Of course, we're not there to take control of these companies. We want to as remain minority partners, but we need the partnerships to, to support them. But we're there to, uh, Quebec is, uh, like I said, if they meet the investment criteria we have, we're there to support them. Okay, and over to Tony. As we've heard from your presentation, SOQUEM is all about exploring for these critical minerals uh, the future economy will depend upon. For one, I know that Quebec makes available, you know, free of charge, enormous amounts of geographical and mapping data to anyone who's interested, including a, a host of project generators and junior explorers. Do you feel like enough people are using this data, you know, and processing it into making Making those elusive new discoveries that we so direly need more of? 
That's an interesting question, Henry. Let's say considering the obvious advantage to have access of this huge amount of geoscientific surveys and other historical works completed by other companies, most people working actively in Quebec are aware of it and use it to facilitate project targeting, etc., saving at time and huge amount of money as well, avoiding rework. That's the biggest point. Let's take an example. Let's develop an example of a new company who want to invest in Quebec province for exploration by generating new CSM projects with access to public data for the first phases of the work from government surveys to historical data such as prospecting, mapping, sampling, drilling, geophysics completed by previous company. This company can begin the generation process by, let's say, using computer-assisted data treatment, artificial intelligence, or any kind of other manual method to locate the best prospective area for a specific commodity without any field visit, except for validation when required, and then complete map designation on internet and begin the targeting process prior to invest money for field work, which is a big, big saving for company. And at the end, all these public data represent an opportunity to begin targeting very early in the process and by this way, saving costs for future works and increase efficiency. And so then perhaps on a granular level, you know, uh, how does SOCOM support mineral explorers? Um, you know, let's talk about, you know, tax incentives available to them and other kind of, you know, supports that aren't perhaps necessarily available in other provinces. Let's say on, on Soquem's side, we certainly uh, help other companies uh, that want to invest in Quebec by partnering, developing partnership with, with, uh, with, with them. Essentially, from generation to advanced project, we are developing partnership with many, many companies, and it's definitely helpful for uh, the outsiders, let's say, to invest in Quebec and having a better understanding of the, the tax incentive and every everything's available in Quebec, uh, essentially, yeah. Mm. Okay, all right, thank you. And then I've got a general question. I'll throw it open to whoever wants to take it, but let's get an update on Quebec's plan Nord, this, uh, you know, very ambitious plan to open up the remote northern parts of Quebec. What's the latest status on, you know, the latest iteration of this plan and how does it indeed help to foster mining and, and exploration uh, investment and development? Well, the Plan Nord is uh, still on and there's a, uh, an action plan to, um, from 2022-2023 and we're working in a complementary way and they are focusing a lot on helping communities to welcome mining projects. So, you know, when we get a new mine coming into uh, operation, we have people coming in, families. It means that we need infrastructures to welcome those people and make sure that we have enough schools, uh, that we have enough, all the suppliers surrounding the, the, the mining site. So, and the, the planner has a, a real nice way to work with local communities to make sure that these social impacts are well addressed. 
Mm. And besides what they are doing too, is they, they make sure that we can optimize and maximize the spinoff of the uh, having a new mind in operation to make sure that we have the maximum spinoff at the local level and at the regional level. So in that sense, it's very helpful. And also they do have a big concern and it's one of their mandate to see how we can develop the infrastructures needed to welcome new people in the northern region. Mm. So in that sense, they have to have uh, an integrated way of doing to make sure that what we do for the mining industry will be helpful for the local communities and the other way around too. So, mm. and uh, I have an example in mind. They've been working hard on making sure that the telecommunication needed with uh, internet and all that kind of infrastructures is uh, is being implemented and it's all being done right now at all level in the whole uh, country, in the whole province. So that's very interesting. And I remember that they, they had to do some talks with the federal government with whom we're working to, to make sure that all the financing needed was uh, given to mm. those infrastructures. Excellent. Okay, thank you for that. And then perhaps along the same vein, you know, for companies interested in doing business in Quebec, how would you characterize the state of reconciliation at the moment? And what's it like to engage with the local First Nations in Quebec when it comes to a new mining project or something? You know, are they receptive to development in general? Uh, you know, obviously there are different contexts at play, but how would you characterize working with First Nations in Quebec? Yeah, well, we're quite lucky, like I mentioned before, we have uh, 56 uh, indigenous uh, communities in Quebec. And with the Cree Nation, the Inuit Nation, and also the Naskapi, we have modern treaties which uh, were signed back in 1975. And these treaties cover around 1 million square kilometer or about 247 miles square so it's a uh, thousand miles square so it's a huge territory but on this territory because of the modern treaties we do have rules that are clear and that gives a very great predictability to promoters and the mining who are already in operation who all the all the ones who want to operate in that sector and we're quite lucky because uh, tony could uh, will probably add to that but in that area we still have a lot of work and exploration to do and uh, the potential is great and we have in that area it's in the northern part we do have nickel mines in operation we have gold mines we have potential for lithium uh, and you has a project there too and uh, tony is there also with some lithium exploration work so it's a great great area for uh, different opportunities and in the southern part where we don't have modern treaties, we do uh, promote a real, uh, an early dialogue, a great dialogue between promoters and the local indigenous communities to be able to know what's coming with their projects. So mm -hmm. we have, they have, we promote that dialogue at the earliest stage possible 
in the sense that they can see what's coming and also what would be the opportunities for the communities in terms of training, in terms of job, in terms of creating uh, enterprises and companies and see different partnerships. So mm -hmm. that's how we see it. It's, it's very important. And of course, as a government, we do bear the obligation, the duty to consult the uh, indigenous communities when it's needed, when we do give or uh, some permits or authorizations. Mm -hmm. So it's something, it's a win-win situation. I think it's, a, it's something that we need to take into account. They have concerns, we have, and we, there are some opportunities for everyone and the pie is growing. So we have to bear on and build on that. We have to build on that, certainly. Maybe I can add the key element for exploration is uh, upstream communication right at the beginning and transparency. That's the absolute key for success in Quebec, in the South and in the North. It's all the same thing. Essentially, you have to consider speaking with people right before or as soon as possible in the process. Excellent. Well, congratulations on creating one of the world's greatest mining and mineral jurisdictions. The world is taking notice, that's for sure. So fantastic job. And great job on the panel. Thank you so much, everyone. Well, thank you very much. Thank, thank you, you for again. having us. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So I hope you enjoyed that brief user's guide to the Quebec mining scene. I found it very informative and I thought Henry did a really good job of moderating the panelists, making sure everybody got a chance to speak, which always makes for a good program. If you want to help out the show, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory, share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.